What a glorious day to worship the Lord together. It is so wonderful to see so many here this morning. We are especially grateful this morning for our visitors amongst us. So glad that you have come out to be with us as we worship the Lord this morning in spirit and truth, seeking to do all things whatsoever God has written in his word for us to do in our worship. Also noticing that we have a few travelers today, of course, Steve and Linda are gone, and uh, Kirk is preaching this morning in prior, and so with it being the Labor Day weekend, we have some folks traveling as well. It is that time of year as the summer winds down, and Labor Day is upon us where vacation time is about over. But you know, there's a lot of places in this country that you can go, and they're noted for a particular route where you can go and see a lot of beautiful scenery. In Oklahoma, of course, is famous for Route 66 and all of the, the places that you can go and things that you can enjoy along Route 66. Maybe if you've been out to the Pacific Coastline, Great Northwest, maybe the Pacific Coast Highway, you may have been on that. Of course, if you go back to my home state of Maine, you can start Route 1 at Kittery and go all the way up to Eastport. I believe you can go all the way to Eastport, but Route 1 is kind of the, the scenic route that you can take up the coast, a lot of little lobster and fish shanties and uh, beautiful scenery up through there to Bahaba and all of that. But today we're going to take a scenic route through the scriptures. Today we're going to take a route that is numbered, shall we say, spiritually speaking, because we have Route 66 in Oklahoma and Route 1 in Maine today. We're going to take the spiritually scenic route of 316 through the scriptures. Did you know there's a route 316 in the scriptures? Stop and think about that. Of course, the Bible verse that is best known probably in all the world is John 316. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. But what we often fail to realize when we hear John 3.16, and I hope after this morning's sermon and tonight's sermon, it's a two-part series, I hope that you, next time you hear John 3.16 or you, you see it written somewhere, that you will remember that John 3.16 is not the only 3.16 numbered passage in the Bible that contains some of the most beautiful promises in all of Scripture. Some of the most beautiful spiritual scenery, the promises and power of God in all of scripture because that number 316 takes you through the heart and soul of some of the most beautiful powerful pivotal passages regarding God's providence in all of scripture and so we're going to look at those this morning and tonight there is out here on this little slanted pulpit up against the left hand wall out there as you go out there's a study outline with even more of these texts that involve 316 somewhere at their heart and soul that I can mention in two sermons because there's just too much there. So get that little study guide and add it to what you learned this morning. I hope that you're encouraged as we take Route 316 through the Bible. We're going to begin this morning with Genesis chapter 3, and as you might likely guess, somewhere around verse 16. It's not always that verse in particular, but the mountains and valleys and beauty surrounding it. We're going to begin with Genesis chapter 3, verses 14 through 19. And we're going to see, along this beautiful spiritual scenic route, we're going to see the promises of God to bring about the coming Messiah 
to overcome the awful consequences, the terrible consequences of sin. Genesis chapter 3, beginning at verse 14 and running right down Ruth 3.16, says this. So the Lord said to the servant, Because you have done this, you are cursed more than all the cattle, more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go, and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. And I'll put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your, your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Then to Adam he said, Because you have heeded the voice of your wife, and have eaten from the tree which I commanded you, saying you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it will bring forth for you, and you shall eat the herb of the field. The sweat of your face you'll eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you shall return. Some people may say, well, that doesn't sound very promising. That doesn't sound very special. What I want us to understand is this. Man has messed it all up. God saw all that he made, and it was very good. And man has, has listened to his wife, who listened to Satan, and they've messed everything up. And so there has to be a price paid for that. But did you notice, even in the midst of that darkness, look at the promise of God. In verse 15, when he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He'll bruise your head, you shall bruise his heel. What happens when you cut the head off a snake? He dies. And God right there in that prophecy is already laying the groundwork for them to know that he's got a plan. He's got a plan to bring Jesus who would destroy what the snake had done, who would destroy the effects of sin, who would take sin. He will destroy what Satan has done in the garden to mess it all up. There's a beautiful promise there. You know, God could have just said, that's it, it's over. You guys have messed this up so bad, I'm going to erase the whole mess and start over. But God's too good to do that. God loves us so much that even when we mess it up, he wasn't going to do that. So in the midst of all that darkness and that pain and that darkness, what do we see? See, God has plans. God says, I'm going to fix this. And God also. In fact, if we were to read Ephesians 1, 4 and Ephesians 3, 8 through 12, I'm not going to turn there, but we would see in the New Testament, it's confirmed that God had this plan in place because he knew how bad man was going to mess up before he ever created man. So we see here God's promise to fix it. Another thing we see here that I would have you notice that he says to man in verse 19, you're dust, and to the dust you shall return. There's a related promise to this that doesn't have anything to do with the number 316, but I want you to turn there real quickly. The related promise is in Psalm 103. Psalm 103. This is beautiful. We need this so much. Because you know what God says there? In Psalm 103, verses 11 through 14, turn to it if you don't know exactly what it says. says that God knows we're just us, too, and he understands when we mess up. That's what it says in my terms. Look what it says in God's terms. Psalm 103, 11 through 14. For as the heavens are high above the earth, so great is his mercy toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. 
As a father pities his children, so the Lord pities those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. God knows our weakness. God knows that at times we're going to mess things up, and God still loves us. God still has promises for us. If we will but fear him and walk with him, strive to do his will. What an incredible God. In Exodus chapter 3, as we continue our 316 journey, in Exodus, if you'll turn there, chapter 3, Moses receives his calling from God to become the Old Testament forerunner of the Messiah. We would read from Exodus 3, verses 13 through 17. 3, 13 through 17. Then Moses said to God, Indeed, when I come to the children of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they say to me, What's his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Moreover, God said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, The Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and this is my memorial to all generations. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and Jacob, appeared to me, saying, I have surely visited you and seen what is done to you in Egypt. And I have said, I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, to a land flowing with milk and honey. I want you to notice the beauty of this passage that centers around or goes down Route 316. God said, I want you to tell them I have visited you and I've seen. I've seen the trouble you're going through and I'm going to come and fix it. I've seen the affliction of my people. You see, when we go through hard times, sometimes it's easy to think God is far off, even though the Apostle Paul says he's near to every one of us. But God says, I want you to know I have seen. I know what you're going through. I know your affliction. I know your problem. And I want you to know that I am going, that I am there with you, and I will bring you through it. The New Testament promises us in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 13 that, that we need, if, if we will just take God's hand, if we will hold on to God, that he will lead us through. That's God's promise here as well. Moving on a little further up Route 316, you know, we often recall and remember in awe what God did with Moses and the Israelites, how God led Moses and the Israelites through the Red Sea. We know that story, and we go, wow, what an incredible story. It's even more incredible if they walk through on dry ground. Dry ground. That's beyond comprehension, but they did. But sometimes, when we think of that, we relegate the story of Joshua leading the Israelites across the Jordan to a lesser place, and we shouldn't. Because that's just as impressive. What Joshua did, what God led Joshua to do with them, leading them across Jordan, is just as impressive. Turn with me in your Bibles to Joshua 3. We're moving right up through this morning. Joshua chapter 3, another stop on our spiritual Route 316. Joshua 3, beginning at verse 14. And running through 17, reads as follows. 
So it was when the people set out from their camp to cross over the Jordan, with the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant before the people, and as those who bore the Ark came to the Jordan, and the feet of the priests who bore the Ark dipped in the edge of the water, for the Jordan overflows all its banks during that whole time of harvest. That wasn't put in there as a mistake. God wanted that in there to show you this was the last possible time you would ever think they'd be able to do this. This was when the water was at its highest. And God did this. God don't mess around and just deal with, with just little miracles. When God does something, God does it all the way. Verse 16, that the waters which came down from upstream stood still and rose in a heap very far away at Adam, the city that is beside Saraton. So the waters went down into the sea, the waters that went down into the sea of the Arabah, the salt sea, failed and were cut off. The people crossed over opposite Jericho. And the priests who bore the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stood firm on dry ground in the midst of the Jordan, and all Israel crossed over on dry ground until all the people had crossed completely over the Jordan. I want to relate this to the New Testament for a moment, something that, I don't know, I hadn't thought too much about before I put this particular lesson together, I don't believe, but consider this. How many songs, don't answer, but how many songs today do we sing about crossing over Jordan? There's a few that we sing about our crossing over Jordan, okay? What does that mean? doesn't mean crossing over the Red Sea, but crossing over Jordan. You say, well, what's the difference? Here's the difference. Think of this. Symbolically speaking, when they crossed the Red Sea, symbolically for us, we don't live under the Old Covenant, we live under the New Covenant. Symbolically speaking, for us, when they cross the Red Sea, that represents our baptism. 1 Corinthians 10, 1 and 2. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud in the sea. Okay? That represents our baptism when they cross the Red Sea. What happened after they crossed the Red Sea? Which corresponds to our baptism in the New Testament. Well, then they went into the desert or the wilderness of sin, right? So after our baptism, we still have to live in this world of sin and, and, and obey God like they didn't and trust God to get through the rest of this life, right? And then after they've done that, what happens? They get ready to cross over the Jordan. What does that represent? After we have been baptized and we've lived this life and navigated through the world of sin and strife that we live in, crossing over Jordan corresponds to our crossing over to our spiritual reward, to our promised land. Wasn't crossing over the Jordan to the promised land? Do you see the symbolism? And so we cross over Jordan in the sense that we go to this promised heaven, this promised land, this spiritual land for us. That's what crossing over the Jordan represented. And I'm reminded as I read Joshua 3 in verse 17, of Hebrews 7.25, for us under the New Covenant, where it says, Jesus is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. We have the hope of our promised land through Jesus Christ, and Jesus is able to deliver us there, like Joshua led these people across. Moving on. Don't even have time to go to this one, but in 1 Kings chapter 3, we see Solomon's beautiful prayer for wisdom answered by God. And in 1 Kings chapter 3, as you go down through verse 16 and the verses around it, what you're going to find there is that, especially in verse 16, God is going to give Solomon 
an opportunity to use the wisdom he's just gained. A couple of women come to him and they're fighting over the same baby and it's a story that a lot of non-spiritual or, or Christian people are familiar with and, and so Solomon, right after that, 1 Kings 3.16, after he's given that wisdom, he's given an opportunity to use that wisdom. Brethren, I want us to understand that when we come to Bible class, we come to worship service and we learn things, God is going to give us an opportunity not too long thereafter to use what we've learned. That's typically been my experience, the way it happens, is that a lot of times we come and learn something and then God will provide us an opportunity not long after to utilize that which we've learned. And sometimes we fail. But we need to keep in mind when we leave this place that what we have learned, there will come a time to use that knowledge. In 2 Kings, we can turn to this one, in 2 Kings chapter 3, revolving around verse 16. The Moabites, 2 Kings 3.16. The Moabites are rebelling against King Jehoram. King Jehoram is an evil king. His father was Ahab, and he was rotten too. Because, you know, the, he didn't fall far out of the family tree here. So Jehoram is the evil king of Israel, son of King Ahab. And the Moabites rebel against him. So this evil king goes and enlists the help of a good king, King Jehoshaphat of Josiah. Let me do that again. King Jehoshaphat, king of Judah. That's what I want to say. And also enlists the help of the king of Eden. And the three of them find themselves in trouble. Let's read about their trouble in 2 Kings 3, verses 9 through 18. 2 Kings 3, 9 through 18. So the king of Israel went with the king of Judah, We've got the evil king, the good king, and the king of Edom. And they marched on that roundabout route seven days. There was no water for the army, nor for the animals that followed them. The king of Israel said, Alas, for the Lord has called these three kings together to deliver them into the hand of Moab. Well, that's it. We've got no water. We're going to perish. We're going to lose this battle. But Jehoshaphat said, Is there no prophet of the Lord here that we may inquire of the Lord by him? So one of the servants of the king of Israel answered and said, Elisha, the son of Shaphat, is here poured water on the hands of Elijah. And Jehoshaphat said, The word of the Lord is with him. So the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat and the king of Edom went down to him. Then Elijah, isn't it funny how people, even when people that, that don't want anything to do with God, like this evil king, isn't it strange how when they get in trouble, turn to God. Then Elijah said to the king of Israel, What have I to do with you? Go to the prophets of your father and the prophets of your mother. Elijah says, Hey, you didn't want anything to do with God. You're following in Ahab and Jezebel's steps. You didn't want nothing to do with God. Go to your gods. Let them deal with you. But the king of Israel said to him, No, for the Lord has called these three kings together to deliver them into the hand of Moab. And Elijah said, As the Lord of hosts lives before whom I stand, surely were it not that I regard the presence of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, I would not look at you nor see you. But now bring me a musician. He said, Hey, if it wasn't for Jehoshaphat who honors God being with you, I wouldn't give you the time today. You haven't served God, you haven't wanted anything to do with God, but because he's with you, I'll help you. Then it happened when the musician played that the hand of the Lord came upon him, and he said, Thus says the Lord, 
Make this valley full of ditches, for thus says the Lord, you'll not see wind, nor shall you see rain. Yet that valley will be filled with water, so that you, your cattle, and your animals may drink. They're not going to see the rain. They're not going to hear the wind. But if they'll go out there and dig holes in this dry land, he said, God will fill them up. And this is a simple matter in the sight of the Lord. He said, God, this is easy for God. Your biggest problem, if you'll trust God and do what God told you to do, it's easy for God to deal with it. You trust him enough to dig holes in the dry and thirsty land or not? When you won't see any rain, you won't hear any wind, do you trust him enough to do what he says? Because <coughs> God can fix this like that. thing is, do you trust him enough to do what he says? Also, uh, he will also deliver the Moabites into your hand. This is so easy. God's going to add to it and do something else. He'll deliver the Moabites into your hand. God is incredible. Well, you can guess what happened, can't you? What happens when you obey God in your darkest hour? God keeps his promise. Look at verses 26 and 7. And the king of Moab saw that the battle was too fierce for him. He took with him 700 men who drew swords to break through to the king of Edom, but he could not. Then he took his eldest son, who would have reigned in his place, and offered him as a burnt offering on the wall. And there was a great indignation against Israel, so they departed from him and returned to their own land. Guess what? Israel escaped, being taken over by the Moabites. They trusted in the power of God. See, even, this is the beauty of God. This is the beauty of this 316 root right here in the scenery we see spiritually. One of the beauties of this, here's a king that hasn't wanted anything to do with God. He hasn't been following God. He, he's been following in the footsteps of his parents who rebelled against God, killed God's prophets. But you know what? We're still willing to do God's will. God will come through for us if we'll repent and start doing what God tells us to do. We have an awesome God. These are the promises we see along Route 316. We see the providential power of godly wisdom to provide the ever-elusive presence of personal happiness. And yet another passage. How many, how many dollars are spent every day in this country people pursuing happiness? Billions, I'm guessing. Everybody's looking for happiness, whether it's in drugs or alcohol or this or that or something else. The bazillions of dollars that are spent. And God said, I, I can make you happy. I can give you a lasting happiness. This passage is Proverbs 3. Turn there to Proverbs 3, verses 13 through 18. This is the scenery on both sides of Route 16. Proverbs 3, 16. Here's the beauty on both sides of the road. Road looking off that route. Proverbs chapter 3. I'm telling you, this route 316 is the most beautiful route you ever saw. Watch this. Proverbs 3, beginning at verse 13. Happy is the man who finds wisdom. And the man who gains understanding. This is talking about godly wisdom and godly understanding. For her proceeds are better than the profits of silver and her gain than fine gold. She, that is wisdom and understanding, she is more precious than rubies. And all the things you may desire cannot compare with her. Whatever it is you're looking for to make you happy, all of it in the world cannot compare with godly wisdom and godly understanding. 
That's where happiness comes from. Well, what can this godly wisdom and understanding do for me besides make me happy? Well, verse 16, length of days is in her right hand. In her left hand, riches and honor. This is what godly wisdom can give you. Her ways are ways of pleasantness, and all her paths are peace. She is a tree of life to those who take hold of her, and happy are all who retain her. I wish I had time this morning to go into every term there. I don't. But godly wisdom, God's wisdom that we find in the pages of Scripture is able to give us a longer, happier, more fulfilling, more... Could you use more peace in your life with some, with some situations? God's Word can do that. Could you use a little more happiness in your life at times? God's Word can do that. That's what this 316 passage, with all of its scenery on both sides, verses 13 through 18, tells us. Begins with happy is the man who finds her, ends with happy are all who retain her. One of my all-time favorites along this route, one of my favorite stops along this Old Testament 316 spiritual route as it winds through the power and the glory and the promises of God is in Daniel. This is powerful stuff. Daniel 3, turn there. We're going to look at verses 13 through 18. Daniel Chapter 3, Ruth 16, right up through the middle. Daniel chapter 3, in verses 1 through 12, we know the story. King Nebuchadnezzar set up this big golden image, and the whole Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they, they decided they are not going to worship this golden image. And so it comes down to this confrontation. Daniel 3, 13 through 15, let us begin and look what it says. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in rage and fury, gave the command to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar spoke, saying to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the gold image which I have set up? Keep in mind, he had destroyed their homeland, killed a lot of their kinsmen, and taken these young men captive. He had the power to wipe them out like that. He had the power to have their heads taken off and say, That's it. Taking their heads off. It would have been done. Now, if you're ready at the time you hear the sound of the horn, flute, harp, lyre, and psaltery, in symphony with all kinds of music, and you fall down and worship the image which I have made, good. But if you do not worship, you shall be cast immediately into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you from my hands? You can't get away from me. I'm the king. I give the orders. You bow down and worship or you're going to die. Verse 16, on Ruth 3, 16 through Daniel. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If that is the case, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us from your hand, O king. You're standing there. The guy's got the furnace, he's got the guards, he's already taken your home, your homeland and, and destroyed most of it, killed a lot of your people, taken you captive, and you're standing there in front of this furnace saying, um, excuse me, our God's able to rescue us. So we're not going to do it. There's no physical reason for them to say that. But they knew God. 
And even though things hadn't worked out necessarily in the past like they had planned, they still knew God was in control. And so this is what happens next. What a beautiful place along Route 316. Again, verse 17, if that's the case, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us from your hand, O king. But if not, we know he can. We know he will. But you know what? If he doesn't, let it be known to you, O king, that we do not serve your gods, nor will we worship the gold image which you have set up. I love this passage. Do you know when you're having your worst time in life, do you know that God is able to, we sing a song, right? God is able to deliver thee. Do we really believe that? Even if in times past it hasn't worked out quite the way we thought. We know God's able. And we know he will. But you know what? Even if in his will and wisdom, even if, if he sees that bigger picture, he decides not to, in this case, for whatever his purpose, we still pray. And we're not doing it your way, we're doing it his way. Isn't that awesome? What did Job say? Even though he slay me, I will trust him. Now the beauty of this scenery, spiritually speaking, in Daniel 3.16 is this. <laughs> I would be remiss if I did not mention verses 27 and 9. We've got to see what happens. Even if we know, please look at it, verses 27 through 29. They came out from the midst of that fire. They got thrown in, all right. And one like the son of the gods, according to Nebuchadnezzar, Jesus himself walked with him through the fire. Jesus Christ goes with us through the fire, brethren. Verse 27, and the satraps, administrators, governors, and the king's counselors gathered together. They saw these men on whose bodies the fire had no power. The hair of the head was not singed, nor were their garments affected, and the smell of fire was not on them. They were in a furnace that was heated seven times what it normally was, and they didn't smell like smoke. Why? Because they said, number one, God's able. We know he will. And even if in his wisdom he don't, we're still going to trust him. Man, how God rewards that. Nebuchadnezzar spoke, saying, Blessed be the God, verse 28, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him. That's the key to the whole thing. They have frustrated the king's word and yielded their bodies that they should not serve nor worship any god except their own god. Young people, older people, and every people in between, we need to understand that verse. God delivers his servants who trust in him and yield their bodies as living sacrifices, Romans 12, 1 and 2, and do not serve any other God except the God of the Bible. What an awesome and powerful picture we have. God saying, stop right here, stop the worship service and saying, what an awesome God we serve. Habakkuk, or however you choose to pronounce it. Seems like everywhere I travel they pronounce this name different. Habakkuk, please turn there. Chapter 3. You can surely guess which verse. Habakkuk chapter 3, beginning at verse 16, reading through verse 18. Habakkuk was speaking about the great day of wrath and judgment of God in chapter 3. And again, remember as we talk about these Old Testament passages, this is God's Old Testament people, um, the Israelites, 
we're under the new covenant, but these still apply to us by extension. In Habakkuk 3, 16 through 18, after God has spoken to Habakkuk the prophet about all of his wrath that is going to be unleashed on the disobedient amongst his people, Habakkuk says, when I heard, my body trembled, my lips quivered at the voice, rottenness entered my bones, and I trembled in myself that I might rest in the day of trouble. When he comes up to the people, he will invade them with his troops. Habakkuk, this prophet of the Lord, was terrified when he heard what God was going to do to those who would not serve him, those who wanted nothing to do with him amongst his people. And how God was just going to come up in all his full-blown wrath. And Habakkuk says, I trembled. My, my, my lips quivered. Rottenness was in my bones. I couldn't move. I was paralyzed. This was so awful. Then he says this, verse 17. Though the fig tree may not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines. Though the labor of the olive may fail, and the yields yield no food. Though the flock may be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. He said, I don't care if everything fails in my life. The food, the prosperity, I don't care if everything fails. I'm going to rejoice in God rather than be one who rejects him and faces all this wrath in the first part of the chapter. He said, despite all those things happening and me losing everything, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength. He will make my feet like deer's feet. He'll make me walk on my high hills. What an awesome God we serve. You know what? Looking at what God is going to do to those who want nothing to do with trusting him, even when it all goes south, I will trust him and I will rejoice. Because God is able and he will, and even if he doesn't, I'll still trust him. Because God always rewards that kind of faith in an incredible way. How beautiful is Ruth 3.16. Turn with me to the very next book, Zephaniah, chapter 3. Let's look at verses 14 through 17. The scenery on each side of Ruth 3.16 through Zephaniah. Zephaniah 3.14-17 Sing, O daughter of Zion, shout, O Israel, be glad and rejoice with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away your judgments, he has cast out your enemy. The King of Israel, the Lord is in your midst, you shall see disaster no more. In that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, do not fear. Zion, let not your hands be weak. The Lord your God is in your midst. The Mighty One will save. He will rejoice over you. God is talking to his Old Testament troubled people. He's saying, you keep trusting God. God's going to take care of this. God's going to deliver you. You cannot even begin to imagine what God is going to do for you. He will be in your midst, verse 15. God says, do not fear. Are we told as New Testament Christians, do not fear? Are we? Yes, we are. Multiple times. Let not your hands be weak. Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 12. Why? And I stopped here for I read this whole thing because it's just so incredible in verse 17. The Lord your God in your midst. Does Christ promise us where two or more gathered is with us? Is he in our midst? The mighty one will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. We often talk about rejoicing in God, right? We're going to rejoice. We're going to sing. Do you know that God rejoices over you? 
When you follow him, do you know that you are his delight and the apple of his eye? Do you know that God rejoices over you? That's what the text says. God Almighty rejoices over Doug. Well, that's what it says. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you second time in the same verse. We're singing. We sing to God because we're happy, right? We sing to God Sundays. We're, we're to sing to one another with psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, singing, making melody from the lips, it tells us. We don't often picture God singing, do we? What does that verse say? God will sing over you. Wow. God rejoices over those who walk with him. What beautiful scenery we see. In Zephaniah 3, 14 through 17. And finally this morning, turn with me to Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament. Malachi, chapter 3, verses 16 through 18. Route 316 winds all the way from Genesis up through Malachi. And tonight we're going to talk about how Route 316 winds through some of the most beautiful spiritual scenery in the New Testament. And I hope that each one of you are here for that. What an incredible God we serve. Malachi chapter 3, verse 16. Then those who feared the Lord spoke to one another, and the Lord listened and heard them. Isn't that great? God rejoices over us, sings over us, and he listens to those who fear him. So a book of remembrance was written before him for those who feared the Lord and who meditate on his name. Notice it was only for them. Those who fear him, those who meditate on him, those who are continually trying to learn about him from his word. The Lord listens to those people, verse 16. God not only listens to them. This is so beautiful. God not only, I'm getting excited just standing here. God not only listens to them, but look what he says in the verses that follow. Look at verses 17 and 18. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, on that day that I make them my jewels. Did you know that God has jewelry box? Spiritually speaking. Did you know that God has jewelry box? Some of you ladies may have a jewelry box. So you may have in that jewelry box some of the most special things to you. Maybe something your husband bought you decades ago. Maybe something that, that your great-grandmother passed down to your grandmother, down to your mother, down to you, and it's just, it's just so precious to you. Do you know that the Bible says that God's got a jewelry box that those who fear him and meditate on him and learn about him are his jewels? There's pride possession. On that day I make them my jewels, and I will spare them as a man spares his own son who serves him. Notice that. Then you shall again discern between the righteous and the wicked, between the one who serves God and the one who does not serve him. God's promises of hearing us and treasuring us, and that's the idea of jewels. He's not going to have a literal jewelry box, but it's not a literal Route 316. It's not paved with tar but those who serve him those who realize everything God has done for them in giving his son Jesus Christ and they realize the mercy and he realizes that, that we are but dust and when people come to understand that God knows I'm going to mess up but God has given his son to cover all my sins and God not only has given the blood of his son, but he wants to make me his son. He wants to make me his jewel. He wants to make me his own son who serves him, verse 17. 
How can I not do that? How can I not be that after all that God has done? After all the promises I've got that, that he will listen to me and that he rejoices over me. I'll tell you what. Don't you just love it when a new baby's born into the family? That little, pure, just innocent baby. I'm telling you, I had some time to spend with my granddaughter yesterday. That kid is perfect. I am telling you, that is one of the most precious, perfect, beautiful little babies I've ever seen in my entire life. But God wants to make us all his sons and daughters. He wants us to be born again of the water and the spirit. He wants us to become children in his family. And when we do, we're his jewels, and he listens to us, and he knows we're but dust, and he sheds his love and mercy on us. And all this path 316, he wants us to travel right behind Jesus, right in the footsteps of Jesus all the way home. How do we become sons and daughters of him? How do we, of his, how do we, how do we take advantage of this? How do we, how do we become these things that are so priceless to the New Testament tells us in Galatians 3, 26 and 7, for you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. In the New Testament, the way we take advantage of the promises is that we decide that we're not going to live for ourselves any longer. We're going to serve God. God loves us so much, we're going to serve him, we're going to please him, we're going to learn about him. When we learn that one of the things we need to do is have our sins washed away, Acts 22 and verse 16. We need to rise and be baptized to have our sins washed away because that's God's plan. You go to a lot of churches, they'll tell you a lot of different things about a lot of different ways that they think you can be saved, but Acts 22, 16, Acts 2:38, we have to be baptized for the forgiveness of our sins. And when we do that, Galatians 3, 26 and 7, we become children of God, all sons of God through faith. And we love him enough to do what he said. Just like that dry land, they dug the wells, and it was an easy thing for God to fill them. When we obey him and we're baptized, it's an easy thing for God to make us his children because he cleanses us from all our sins. That's why Jesus came. If you would respond to that call this morning and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins to become a son and daughter of God, or if you've already done that, but you are having a struggle in your life, I want you to understand I don't know what the fire is that you're each going through, but I do know this. There is no fire you can walk through that God will not walk through with you if you will take his hand and allow him to be there and trust him and do it his way. Our God is able. He will. And even if he doesn't, we'll go into the fire for him. Why? Because he'll walk with us. If you need the prayers of the church or to be baptized into Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, Please come as we stand and sing, and please be back tonight as we continue along Route 316 in the New Testament. Please come now.